at one verse. One verse. Just by way of announcement while you're still turning there. Oh, by the way, if you're using the, the Bible in the pew and you don't know how to navigate your way around it, uh, Matthew chapter 5 is on page 809 of that Bible. Um, but next Sunday evening will be our September uh, evening prayer time, and so I hope that you will uh, make time to be here at 7 o'clock uh, for that hour. It is a crucial time in the life of our church. Matthew chapter 5, what I'm going to actually do is I'm going to read more than one verse, but we'll only focus on one. I'll begin reading at chapter 5, verse 2, and we'll read through verse 12. And Jesus opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Our Father, now as we come to your word, we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would open our ears to hear and open our minds to understand and open our hearts to love and believe what you say in your word. We pray, God, it will change our thinking and change our lives. We pray now through the preaching of your word that your church will be strengthened and that you will call the lost home to yourself. We pray it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. What is a Christian like? Now, if you were to ask ten different people that question, my guess is you might get ten different answers. Uh, one who is not a Christian might answer differently, for, would probably answer differently from one who is a Christian. Uh, maybe one who is an older Christian might answer differently than a younger Christian. Quite frankly, you might answer differently today than you would have five years ago or maybe five years even before that. But what is a Christian like? What are the marks of a Christian life? Now, whatever answers may run through our minds, I hope that you see, I hope you just come at least to understand this, that that question is really important. It is really important that we understand what a Christian is like, what it is that marks a Christian life. If you're not a Christian, it's important to know what the Bible says is a Christian and not just to add up your experiences of other Christians, because we'd be the first to tell you we don't always live up to what the Bible says a Christian ought to be like. 
But also, if you're a Christian, you ought to know what a Christian is like because we ought to know how it is that we're meant to live. And Jesus answers that question, what is a Christian life? He, he, what is a Christian like? He answers it in this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount that we call the Beatitudes. But He doesn't give us one characteristic. He gives us several. Now, before you start thinking of something else, like this is a buffet, this, is, this list is not of Beatitudes is not actually a list that you can pick and choose from. It's, uh, it's not like, well, I can do the pure in heart bit, but uh, uh, merciful, I, I don't do that. That's just not in my bones. I, it's just not who I am. Well, that's not going to do for Jesus. All of these things go together. It's kind of like the way we ought to think about the fruit of the Spirit. You remember how Paul puts it in, in Galatians 5? The, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Holy Spirit produces all these things. Now, they may grow at different rates in different Christians, but all Christians should be marked by all of the fruit. And that's what it's like with the Beatitudes. The, the Beatitudes, as it were, is like, these are like a constellation. Each one is a star that shines on its own, but they must be seen together, taken together in relationship to one another, understood as a whole, if we're going to have a right picture of what the Christian is to be like, is like. And this morning we're going to look at the first of these Beatitudes, the fountainhead, as you will, because all of the other ones really flow out of this one. Without this first one being true, really none of the other ones will be true. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want us to think about this by asking three questions. First, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? That's an important question. That word comes up over and over again. And people use that word all the time, don't they? Christian or not, people use the word blessed all the time. You don't believe me? Just go on whatever social media platform you choose to participate in and search hashtag blessed. Now, I'll tell you, I did that this week, and it was interesting. It was interesting what people are blessed by. I mean, some things you might expect, like being blessed to have a job or to have a new job, to have friends. Blessed to get a new car. Blessed to work on an album with a friend as musicians. But then some of them got a little unusual for me. One was blessed by a good bicep workout. Blessed to be on a particular sports team. Blessed by having hair this year when they were going bald last year. I'm hoping next year I can actually write that. That would be nice. Blessed. Now, I have never thought this. I get mail, and most of it's junk, and any junk that comes through, any mail that comes through the post office is probably 85 to 90 percent junk these days. But one person said they were blessed by the arrival of an insurance policy booklet. These are things I don't understand. 
The word is used a lot, but it's important that we understand what is it that Jesus means when he says blessed. Now, as you know, the Bible wasn't written in English. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are two different words for blessed. There are two different words in Hebrew, which is most of the Old Testament, and two different words in Greek, which is the New Testament. One word in each language focuses on God's action. God is one who blesses. God blessed them. That's what Genesis 1 says. And then in Genesis 12, God makes the promise, I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. God blesses. He gives undeserved favor. Now, but the other word, both in Hebrew and in Greek, don't focus on God's action so much as it focuses on a condition of our lives, a state of being. It speaks to a privileged condition in life. It speaks of a place in life that's worth celebrating. This is something that's good. And the word that Jesus uses here, the Greek word, is makarios. And 300 years after this was written, when the New Testament will be translated into Latin, the word beatus in Latin would be used. Now, that looks a little more familiar, doesn't it? Because beatus is where we get the word beatitude. All right? But being blessed like this, this kind of condition in life that's worth celebrating, it actually can center on earthly things. It can center on uh, uh, having a wife. It can center on having children. Psalm 127 uses it that way. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. But the, and the, but the way that Jesus uses it doesn't center on earthly things. It doesn't center on having children or, or, or this temporal thing or that temporal thing. It actually centers on the soul. This kind of blessed actually transcends the events and the cares of life. It's a spiritual blessedness. In fact, the word that we know as blessed, or if you're just in the habit of saying it because you grew up reading the King James, blessed, right? You find yourself doing that, you get to the, you get to the Beatitude, you'd say blessed on any other document in the world, but you get to the Beatitudes, and what do you say? Blessed, 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 because you just said it that way and you've heard it that way for so long, which is wonderful. It's wonderful to have it in your minds. But that's the way most translations do it. Some other ones use the word happy, which isn't great. It's not a great word, especially in our circumstance. We tend to think of happy as centered on circumstances are going my way, so I'm happy with them. But there are other things, other suggestions that people have made in different times. Some say, you know, it's, it's like saying, how honorable. Congratulations. How fortunate. Wonderful news. But there's one that I ran across this week that I found I actually like it a lot. I'm not going to have you mark anything out of your Bible, but I wonder if you just write it in the, the margin of your Bible, this word, flourishing. Flourishing. This is the idea in these Beatitudes. Jesus is telling us, this is what a citizen of God's kingdom looks like. This is what a Christian looks like. This is what it means for your soul to flourish. Flourish. 
This is what it means to be blessed. This is what real flourishing looks like. It doesn't look like a full bank account or a clean bill of health or, or a promotion at work or peaceful circumstances in your home. This kind of blessing transcends all of that. This kind of flourishing is possible when there's no money in the bank account. This kind of flourishing is possible when there's no advancement in your career. This kind of flourishing is possible when there's cancer in your bones. This kind of flourishing is possible when there's trouble all over your life. And to say that is counterintuitive, isn't it? It's not how the world thinks. It turns the way the world thinks actually upside down and on its head. But this is Jesus' normal mode of operation, isn't it? He says, well, do you want to gain? Well, then you must lose. You want to go up and be exalted by God? You must humble yourself. You must go low. You want to be great? Be a slave of all. You want to live? Then die. And Jesus says... In these Beatitudes, the ones who are blessed, the ones who are the real flourishers, are the ones who are poor in spirit, the ones who mourn, the ones who are meek, the ones who show mercy, the ones who are pure, the ones who make peace, and the ones who are persecuted. I wonder how that sits with you. If you were to sit down this last week and you were to say, all right, what does the blessed life look like? Would you have written down any one of those? I don't think so. And yet Jesus comes to us and he says, this is the way of flourishing. This is what blessed looks like. You want to be blessed? This is what blessed looks like. Do you think you have a blessed life? Well, look in the mirror, Jesus says, and look for these things. And at the head of the list, the one who flourishes is poor in spirit. Well, that brings us to our second question. What does it mean, then? Who is the one who is poor in spirit? Now, being poor in spirit is not to be financially poor. It is not to be a monk. I mean, if it were, if that's what the Bible meant by poor in spirit, Paul would rebuke rich folk just for being rich. But he doesn't do that. He tells them how to live as rich folk in 1 Timothy 6. He says, as for the rich, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Poor in spirit isn't financial. It's spiritual. The poor in spirit. But even so, if we think financially for just a minute, I think it will help us to understand what Jesus is going for. Because the word poor here in Greek is a very strong word. It does not mean that you're running a little short on cash this week. It does not mean that you're behind on your bills. It does not mean uh, 
that your paycheck is smaller than everyone else's paycheck at work. No, no, no. What it means is you have nothing and no one. You're empty. The weight of poverty crushes you and you shrink to the status of a beggar. And so you're skin and bones from lack of food. And you cower in the corner with your head down, not making eye contact at anyone, with, with one hand out, pleading for help, and the other covering your face, ashamed. Poor is what Lazarus is in Luke chapter 16. Jesus talks about a rich man, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. I remember being outside the, uh, a place called the Red Fort in English, in English. It would be called, we just called it the Red Fort when a number of us went to India several years back. And right outside the gates, right as soon as they would allow it, because you couldn't be a beggar inside, but there were beggars all over outside. And one in particular whose demeanor and his face will never be forgotten. He had, he had suffered in some kind of terrible accident and the whole shape, he had a whole misshapen face because of whatever it is that he had been part of. And he was begging and he was pleading and he, because he had nothing. He had no one. He had nowhere to go. No bed to lay on. He had nothing. That is poor. And Jesus takes this absolute destitution of life and he takes it out of the financial realm and puts it into the spiritual realm. That to be poor in spirit then is to be spiritually bankrupt. It is to be empty. It is to have no spiritual resources. It is to have nothing to offer God, nothing to bring to the negotiating table with Him, nothing to leverage Him. It is to have a profit and loss statement for your soul and to have nothing in the profit line and everything in the loss line. And that poverty of our soul exists because we are creatures, but because of sin, because of our disobedience, because we live in rebellion against God. You see, sin doesn't just empty our bank accounts. It put, puts us in a position of debt, overwhelming, crushing, unpayable debt with God, and God takes no IOUs. You can't talk your way out of this debt. You can make an appointment with him all day long and talk about how you can come up with the money, but it'll never work because there isn't enough money. We can't get our hands on enough money. We'll never scratch and claw our way out of this debt. We're poor. But it's important that we go a step further because when Jesus talks about being poor in spirit... He is not just speaking objectively 
okay? He's not just saying that the citizens of the kingdom of God are those who are objectively poor in spirit, objectively in debt to God, objectively destitute, objectively poor. If that were the case, you know who'd be in the kingdom of God? Everyone. Everyone would be in the kingdom of God. Why? Because we're all poor in spirit. In that objective sense of the word, we're all sinners. We're all destitute. None of us has any claim on God. But you see, Jesus is going for more than just the existence of an objective condition. He's talking about our subjective experience. He's asking the question, do you know your poverty? Do you embrace your poverty? Do you feel your poverty. It's like what Jesus says about the righteous and the sinner, or the sick and the well. So listen to what he says in Mark chapter 2. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, those, those who believe they're fine, who don't think that all their symptoms add up to illness, they'll tell you, I don't need a doctor. This is not an uncommon line for us men, is it? I mean, a man can have a raging fever. He can have an open wound that will not stop bleeding. He can have chest pain that radiates down his left arm, and he'll say, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's, only the, it's not those who objectively need a doctor that get a doctor. It's those who know they need a doctor get a doctor. And Jesus says the same for the righteous and the sinners, those who think they're righteous, those who think I can get past God. I've been in church my whole life. My parents are Christian. I was raised in a Christian home. I know all the hymns. I can quote more Bible than that pastor up there. I've got this down. I can get past God's judgment. I got it. Those are folks who don't actually need a Savior at least not in their own minds. It's only those who know they're sinners. So when Jesus says Christians are poor in spirit, those who have the kingdom of heaven are poor in spirit, He means we know it. We know our debt. We, we feel our debt. We know the punishment we deserve. It, it's not, don't misunderstand. It's not a kind of wallowing in self-pity. All right? It's not self-loathing. The poor in spirit simply see the facts for what they are, and we see ourselves for who we are, and we know, I ain't got nothing. And so, as it were, the posture of our life is to have one hand over our face in shame and one hand out, begging for mercy and grace. In other words, a true Christian is not like the church in Laodicea that Jesus rebukes. You remember what Jesus said to them? He looks at them, and this is what he says. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. No, the true Christian is like the prodigal son. He's bankrupt, laying in a pigsty, starving, 
He comes to his senses, gets up and decides he'll go to his father with one hand over his face, as it were, and one hand out for mercy. And he'll say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It is the realization and the confession that we are not worthy to be called God's child and to be glad to receive any scraps that he might have for us. But friends, this kind of realization, this confession isn't natural. It doesn't just happen. In fact, naturally, you know what we do? We kick back against this. We kick back. We insist, no, 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 no. I do have something to bring to the table. I saw a guy standing outside Target with a sign, and I gave him money. I went on a mission trip. I read the Bible to my children, for goodness sakes. I know the really old hymns. I'm a deacon. I'm a pastor. I've got something to bring to the table. It's not like I've got nothing. I mean, I know I don't have enough, but I've got something to bring to the table. And if Jesus chips in, we'll get there. Friend, that's not poor in spirit. And that's actually why the human condition is as bad as it is, because we're not only destitute, we're blind to our destitution. We don't see it. We walk around with scales over our eyes. And in our own imagination, we create this alternate reality where I'm not as bad as other people and that pastor say that I am. No one is naturally poor in spirit the way that Jesus talks about. No one is self-consciously poor in spirit by nature. We need God's Spirit to touch our eyes and remove the scales and show us how impoverished we are. That's the case with us, and it's also the case with, if you're a Christian, it's the case with the friends that you're sharing Jesus with. You're having these gospel conversations with them. And, and the reasoned arguments, trying to convince them that they are sinners and that they need a Savior, all of those have a place. That it is right to do that. But, but at some point, we have to recognize our reasoned arguments aren't going to win the day. They need to see it. They need to believe it. And God's the only one who can make them see and so we pray. Same thing for our kids, isn't it? You can teach them any catechism you want to. You can teach the Bible forwards and backwards and teach them every hymn in the hymn books. And you can take them to church every time the doors are open and sometimes when the doors are not open. But unless the scales fall from their eyes, it won't matter a hill of beans. Because those who are poor in spirit must see it and believe it. 
They are the ones who are blessed. They are the ones whose souls are flourishing. They are to be congratulated on being poor in spirit. Applaud it. Celebrate it. Why? Isn't that a good question? Why celebrate it? This seems silly. It's so backwards. Why would you celebrate such a condition? Why would you celebrate destitution? Well, Jesus tells us why. Third question, why are the poor in spirit blessed? Well, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That little word for means because. Why are the poor in spirit blessed? Why should we consider it a good thing? Why is it that that is spiritual flourishing? Why? Because those are the folks that are in. Those are the folks that have the kingdom. Being poor in spirit is the condition of those who find grace to enter God's kingdom, and it's the condition of those who have the grace to live as part of God's kingdom. Do you remember in, in, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells of a tax collector, and he won't even come inside the temple. He stays at a distance. He won't even look up to heaven as he prays because he feels the weight of his own unworthiness. And here's what he prays. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is what Jesus says about him. This man went down to his house justified. He's poor in spirit, and he finds grace. You see, those who are poor in spirit don't just get bread and water. They don't just get the spare change. They get the kingdom. Listen to what is said, Hannah prays in uh, 1 Samuel 2, her song of praise, and it also is repeated in Psalm 113. God raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Not just so that they will get by. Not so that they can maybe make ends meet. Not so they can reach the middle class. Why? Why? What does he do? He raises them up to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. That is how God works. The ones who know they have nothing in themselves have everything from God. They are blessed. They cover their face with one hand and they extend their other hand for mercy and they find it in Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that by His poverty so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus Christ has an, an unending wealth of righteousness. He needs nothing. Poverty was completely unknown to him until he came into the world. And then he became poor for us. Now, yes, he was financially poor. He said he had, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But more than that, our spiritual poverty was laid on him. He himself was no sinner. 
He was perfect in righteousness and obedience, but our poverty was laid on him. He became sin for us. He bore the load of our debt. He became poor, Paul says. And he died under the weight of our spiritual poverty so that we wouldn't. Instead, we'd become rich. Rich in righteousness. His righteousness credited to our account. And that transaction happens through faith. It happens as we believe that we actually are poor in spirit. It happens as we look to Jesus, trusting that He paid our debt, trusting that Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. But he washed it white as snow. You see, unless you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven until you recognize your spiritual poverty. You'll never have everything until you know you have nothing. Nothing except Jesus. But friend, this isn't simply about entering the kingdom of God. It's about living in the kingdom of God because here's the reality. And I think some are confused about this. You never grow past knowing that you are poor in spirit. You never get beyond it. It's never an idea that you leave behind. The Christian never forgets that he had nothing to bring to the table with God and yet still has a place at the table. C.S. Lewis said, the true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool, the inner cesspool of our own sin, our own poverty. If we're truly Christians, we won't walk through life with our noses in the air as spiritual snobs thinking we're the righteous ones above all these sinners. We'll never forget our spiritual poverty. In fact, we'll remember it often, probably daily. We'll remember it as we confess our sins, sins that we thought we'd be done with by now. You ever confess those sins? You ever confess those sins that you're like, I thought I would be beyond this by now? Sins that break our hearts, sins that hurt our relationship. By God, in God's kindness, we are reminded of our spiritual poverty by His Spirit as we are convicted of sin over and over again. But with God's help, we don't just remember our poverty, do we? We also remember the gospel. We remember that the riches of Jesus Christ meet us in our poverty. And we remember that because of Christ, we're no longer beggars outside the kingdom. <laughs> we're beggars who belong. We're beggars with the deed to the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that moment when the soul remembers its poverty and remembers the riches of salvation in Jesus, that moment is worth celebrating, friends. That moment is when your soul truly flourishes. That moment is blessed. And a life full of those kinds of moments 
remembering that we are poor in spirit, remembering our rich and good and gracious King Jesus, that is a blessed life. That is a Christian life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you thankful for these words which keep us from getting puffed up in pride. We thank you for these words that keep us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. We pray that you would convince us over and over again not only that we are poor in spirit, but that we are blessed as those who are poor in spirit. Because when we recognize we have nothing, you give us everything. I pray for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, those who think they have something because they have vague thoughts of God or by, because they have thoughts that they do better than their neighbors do and they do more good than their neighbors do or their family does. God, I pray for those who think they have anything in their account with you and I pray that you would graciously show them they have nothing. And I pray, God, that you would change them so that they sing, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Give them grace to turn from their sin and to trust in Jesus Christ and to live a life that is blessed by knowing that our standing in the kingdom of God is not based on us at all. For we are poor in spirit. It is based on Jesus Christ. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen.